Matthew chapter 13. Would you join me? Matthew 13. I, I don't know how many weeks we've been in this uh, particular chapter. We're going through the book of Matthew, and we're in, a par- we're in a chapter filled with parables. We've already looked at a couple of those, and today, Lord willing, we'll look at a, two more uh, this morning, two kind of combining in this uh, with several still to go in the chapter. Uh, but today, our attention is going to be focused on five verses. And other than these five verses, I think, uh, according to plan as of now, we'll only look at two other uh, verses in Revelation in a little bit uh, to support something that will be said in a little bit. So just five verses this morning, really, really simple. Uh, Again, as has happened many times, when I first looked at this, I thought, is there enough to preach on just these five verses? And as usual, there's plenty. Okay. (laughs) Oh, that's funny. All right. Would you notice verse 31? So I'm not going to give a lot of background other than to say Jesus was teaching in a house to his disciples. He leaves the house, goes down to the seashore, the Sea of Galilee, to the shore. An enormous crowd follows, so large, he has to get in a boat out on the water and project his voice back to them as he's sitting there standing, we believe thousands of people. He gives them a parable about a sower. Then he gives a parable about weeds sowed among wheat. And then he's going to give us these two here. So let's look at verse 31 to 35. You ready? Here we go. This is as important as anything we'll do today as this initial reading. He put another parable before them saying, The kingdom of heaven, let me pause there to remind what we're talking about, the kingdom of heaven is not just something that's coming in the future when we get to heaven. It's the heavenly kingdom of God that is being brought to earth, we could say, that began at the ministry of Christ. And what he's going to say, these parables are going to give us snapshots and pictures of some qualities of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Christ, moving from then until the end of what we call time. From there to the final judgment. So he's going to give us some information about that kingdom. Verse 31 again. He put another parable before them. This is the huge crowd. Most of them are not following him fully yet. They're coming to check him out. And he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Would you notice, first of all, he does not say the kingdom of heaven is like grains of of mustard seed. He's not saying it's like mustard seeds. He says the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. He took it and sowed it in his field. What's his point? He says about this mustard seed, this grain, it is the smallest of all seeds. Notice the word smallest, but keep reading. But when it has grown, it is larger. Notice the word larger. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree. Now, officially, botanically, they would probably not say the mustard plant becomes a tree. What his point is, it becomes large enough that you would consider it to be a tree. They tell us these things can reach 12, 15 feet high in the right conditions and at the right time their branches can get hardened so much so that it's actually able to do what he says at the end of verse 32 
He says, it's the smallest of all seeds, the mustard seed, but when it is grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. So there's the parable of the mustard seed. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven. Leaven, that a woman, so now we have a woman that is doing something. First, we had this man that's planting the seed. So gender doesn't matter. Then we have a woman who took and hid. So watch it again. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. So that three measures does not mean there's lump one, lump two, lump three. It means a measurement of one lump, and this is a large measurement of flour that has some leaven inserted into it, the end of the verse, till it was all leavened. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like leaven. Now for the word 34, 35. All, this is Matthew now. This is not Jesus talking. Matthew, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, who's writing this gospel for us, says, all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Matthew was there that day. He said nothing to them without a parable. Why? This was to fulfill, again, Matthew writing. This is something we didn't even know to look for, but Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that Jesus teaching these parables was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And then he quotes Psalm 78, verse 2, the prophet the seer, the psalmist named Asaph, writes Psalm 78. It's a long psalm. And here, Matthew quotes Psalm 78 too, quotes Asaph, the seer, prophet, psalmist, where he wrote the following in verse 2 of Psalm 78. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Watch, here's Christ on the timeline, and so here is Matthew saying when Jesus was doing his parables, he's like Asaph a thousand years earlier or hundreds of years earlier, and what Jesus is doing in his parables is revealing things that have been hidden since the foundation of the world. They've been hidden, but now they're not hidden because of the parables of Christ. So there's our text for today. So let me go ahead and tell you that as I began to look at this, you guys see on your handout if you're taking notes, there are three points. And I originally had three points, and they were different points. As I first approached this, I thought, man, this is the easiest, most simplest outline I've ever had to do. Uh, verse 31 and 32, that'll be point number one, parable of the mustard seed. Verse number 33, be real simple, parable of the leaven. And then verse 34 and 35 have to, has to do with Jesus preaching and teaching by parable, so that'll be its own point. There you go, one, two, three, I like three, it's a great number, and that's the way we'll approach the text, but that's not what's on your handout, okay? Why? Because within an hour of reading this several times, it became pretty clear to me two dynamics. So here's the first dynamic that changed things for me. As I began to look at the lessons and implications, the principles that Jesus was trying to teach through the parable of the mustard seed and then the leaven, I started realizing there's a lot of overlap. And then if you'll track these down, all of the parables that are in Matthew 13 are not always grouped together in Mark and Luke. And Mark and Luke may not have all of the parables in here. But when you find these two, what they're, they, they're always like beside each other. It's almost as though they go together. And so I begin to think, if I do just the mustard seed, I'm going to feel while I'm making the principles and, and teaching the point, 
I'm going to need to go down and steal in advance from the leaven because they kind of overlap. And then when I get down to the second point, I'm just going to kind of be re repeating that. And so we're not going to do it separately like that. Second thing I noticed is that verse 34 and 35, this will make sense if you were with us three weeks ago. I'm reading this. It occurs to me that verse 34 and 35 are kind of continuation of verses 10 to 17. If you haven't heard that message, I would encourage you, not because of who preached it, but because of what it teaches, go back three weeks ago and find on the website the purposes of Christ's parables. And that's on verses 10 to 17. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to make 34 and 35 its own point. I'm going to have a little longer introduction this morning. And I'm going to talk about 34 and 35, how they relate to verses 10 to 17. You're not going to see it on the screen. So if you have your Bible open or where you can scroll, you'll have an advantage in just a moment. Then, after that, we're going to spend the bulk of the message looking at combined lessons of the mustard seed and the leaven. And that's where we'll draw three lessons or principles, ideas Jesus was teaching. Look again at verse 34 and 35. Would you look at that right quick? All these things, we're going to get back to verse 31 and 33 in a little bit. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. And here he quotes, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. If you were here three weeks ago or watched that or listened to that, here's what we found out. In verse 10, the disciples come up to Christ and saying, why are you teaching them in parables? I believe they're kind of like a little aggravated. Lord, don't you know the crowds are not understanding all that you're giving? They're missing a lot of this. Why are you doing this? And then in the text, I went out of order, but we found that Jesus gave four reasons for teaching in parables. Let's review those quickly. Watch. In verse 13 and 14, here's the generic reason. You want to know why I teach them in parables? Because they're spiritually blind. Seeing, yeah, they see things and they hear things, but they don't really see and they don't really hear. They don't understand. They don't perceive. That's reason number one. It's Christ's parables or Jesus' response to blindness, spiritual blindness. But then the second and third reason broke down that generic reason, gave us specific reasons why. Second reason, Jesus taught and preached by parables. Second reason, it's, it's a judgment on those who refused to hear God's truth. Verse 15, he says, Some, these people have closed their eyes. These people's hearts are dull. They're full. They're fat with their own theology. They have their own ideas. They don't want God's truth. And so they've just closed their eyes to the truth of God. And so what Christ is saying is they've rejected God's truth. So I'm not going to give them more straightforward doctrinal statements. I'll give them stories that have principles because they've refused. The third one, very controversial, comes out of verse 11. And what Christ says, here they come. Why are you teaching them in parables? Verse 11, he answered them, because to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. Real simple. Jesus' parables were a display of God's sovereignty. These, this group asks why parables. Jesus says, because the truth has been given to you to know. It's not been given to them to know. You say, Jeff, what in the world does that mean? That means that no one can understand spiritual things. No one can, no human being. We can never understand the spiritual truths that are necessary to get saved unless God lets us see them. And the Lord very simply says, it's been given to you, it's not been given to them. And so, not only is there refusal on their part, there's an inability on their part to understand spiritual truths. You say, Jeff, what does all of that mean? Well, you have to go back and watch that other sermon. 
Okay, I can't go into that right now, and I know you're thinking, I don't like that. Well, go watch that, and you're probably not going to still like it. I'm just telling you. It says what it says. Read the text. Don't get mad at me. Okay, read the text. That's what Jesus says in verse 11. A fourth reason, though, is important. Jesus says he's teaching those who do understand in parables because these stories help us like be impacted by this truth to like see things even more clearly than just straight doctrinal statements help us to remember them again parables make an impact on us and so it's a blessing verse 12 Jesus says for to the one who has to those who do understand spiritual things to the one who has let me find it more will be given and he will have an abundance in other words my parables Christ would say are a blessing to those who do understand whose eyes are open whose hearts not full of their own ideas now why did we all do all of that verse 34 and 35 here's what we find a fifth reason Jesus teaches and preaches by parables is because Jesus's life his birth his life his death his burial his resurrection these fulfill some 300 prophecies in the Old Testament. And one of those prophecies comes out of Psalm 78, verse 2. We, don't even, we didn't know it. It was veiled and hidden. But Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says, Here's one of the things the Christ, the Messiah, will do. He will teach and preach by parables. Be looking for someone who teaches and preaches by parables. And Christ fits the bill. So a fifth reason is because Christ fulfills the prophecy that he would teach and preach in parables. Everybody look at verse 34 right quick, very quickly, just for a moment. I need to at least add a potential amendment to something I've said multiple times before. A potential amendment. Look at verse 34. We know we end up with having seven or eight parables in, verse, in chapter 13. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Now... What that may mean is that Jesus, as far as the crowds were concerned, not privately, as far as the crowds, he may only have spoken to them in parables. Literally, just parable, and another one, and another one, and another one. Just parable, parable, parable. Or it could mean if he taught anything outside of a parable, he always included a parable with it. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. Why does he give the parables? Again, verse 35, I think connects back with that fourth reason Jesus taught in parables. It was a form of blessing. Look at verse 35. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I'll open my mouth in parables. It's talking about what Christ would do. Why will he utter what has, why is he going to utter these things? Because he's uttering what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. His parables would show us things we didn't know clearly without the parable. Now, if I could have your attention just for a moment, can we recap two things? Today's the third and the fourth parable. Do you remember what we've already learned by the first and the second parable? There was this sower who goes out and sows seed. Do you guys remember Christ is saying there's something about that sower and what happens that is like the kingdom of heaven from the time of Christ until the final judgment? What is it like? And here's the lesson of the sower. Here's one of the things, one of the hidden mysteries that were hidden to mankind in the Old Testament, but now made clear by Christ. And one of the ways he makes it clear is through his parables. Here's one of the lessons. The effects of the same gospel being preached can have a different effect on different people because we're not all the same. In other words, one of the things the Lord's saying, you ought to be ready for this. You can preach. A person literally over the same microphone could preach to a thousand people and they will respond differently. 
Some of them will not understand it. Most would probably not even understand it. Some would understand it, and it would seem like they're adhering to it and taking it and receiving the gospel for a time, but they're quitters, and they never really took it. Another group seems to understand, as it were, but they aspire to be a Christian and a follower of Christ, but they never actually do it because they care more about the things of this world. But then he says there is this good ground, and in those thousand people, some will truly follow Christ. So be expecting that dynamic. Last week we saw a second parable. What was its lesson? From the time of Christ until the end of what we call time, expect unbelievers to be among the believers posing as true Christians, but not being true Christians. Not to be mean, I fully anticipate they're here this morning. There's no doubt some who are here, some who are watching who would say, I am not a Christian. I know I'm not a Christian. But there are some, no doubt, who think they are Christians, but they're deceived. But there very well may be some who know they're not Christians, but are pretending to be a Christian. Expect that dynamic to be among us. And then today we have two more parables. Very quickly before I give you what I feel the Lord has shown me, the lessons of verses 31 to 33... Let me just touch on a couple of things. Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a grain and it is like leaven. It's like a grain and it's like leaven. Would you look at verse 31? Look at it with your eyes. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It's the smallest of all seeds. Do you guys realize Jesus and the Bible have taken a lot of grief and a lot of attacks because of that phrase by modern people? You say, wow, what's the problem? Well, modern people have realized that the mustard seed is not actually the smallest of all the seeds in the world. And so some have heard that, and they conclude, see, the Bible's a lie, and Jesus doesn't know what he's talking about. So what do you say to those folks? I think my answer to them would be, before you just throw out Christ as someone who doesn't know what he's talking about, think about what he's doing. Remember the purpose, and again, you'd have to go back to two weeks ago, two or three, remember the purpose of a parable Christ on this occasion is not, his plan, his goal is not to make a statement of, of botanical fact. He's not out there, hey guys, gather around, I'm a botanist, let me tell you about what's the, no, that's not the point. He's making a spiritual point by using something, watch this, that is common. The key here, a parable is, I want to teach them something that's unknown, so I'm going to use something that is known. Had Christ stood up and said, do you know that the kingdom of heaven is like this? And he starts talking about the wild orchid seed. They'd probably go, what's a wild orchid seed? They don't know what a wild orchid seed is. If he were to start talking about some cypress seeds, they wouldn't know about that. Here's the point. In their day, in their culture, Christ wants something that's going to connect with his audience. You know among the cultivated plants, the smallest seed, that those people would have known what that is. It was the mustard seed. It was the smallest of the cultivated plants. They're not going to be out there learning all of those things. These are the seeds that we work with. And so Christ is going to say, I'm going to talk about that one. It's the smallest of seeds that you would even know about. Look at verse 33. Just before our main points this morning, we need to decipher what in the world is this leaven. And most of you know this. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. It's like leaven. So what is leaven? Okay. Leaven, what, the idea is fermented dough. It's fermented. So here's fermented dough, and over here is 
unfermented, unleavened dough. This dough is fermented because it has yeast in it or baking soda, something like that. And so Christ is, the reason this would especially connect in their day is because they didn't have Ingles and Publix and Bilo. You didn't go down and buy bread at the local store. Ladies made their own bread. And so as they're making bread, here's what they would do like every time. Before they cook a batch of leavened bread, which is what they ate 51 weeks out of the year, only during the Feast of Passover they could not eat leavened bread. So, but the other 51 weeks, they're going to cook leavened bread. Right before they would cook that loaf, that dough, they would take a piece out of it to go into the next batch because they would cook that and then they would get their flour together, in this case a large amount of flour, verse 33, but they would get the next batch of flour and mix it with water, not whatever other ingredients, and they would mix that together and it's going to be unleavened lump of dough. But then they would insert just a little piece of leaven back into that lump of unleavened dough, and it would work its way through the unleavened dough, making it a leavened lump of dough. And now it's ready to be cooked, but before we throw it in the oven, we need to take another piece out for the next batch that's coming after that. They would just keep doing this over and over and over. And so what Christ is saying is, that's like the kingdom of heaven. One last thought, and I'll give you this note, and we'll move on to our three points. Some people, because, y'all help me here, often, we could even use the word usually in Scripture, leaven represents what? Usually, leaven represents sin or evil. And for that reason, I'm thinking of one particular author that I read this week, bless his heart, he has a negative take on the whole parable of the mustard seed because the birds in, in this parable must be like the birds in the previous parable that represent the devils. And so he, he must think that every time birds are used in Jesus' parables, they always have to represent devils. And so he only has a negative take on the mustard seed. And when he comes to leaven, he, it's the same thing because leavens usually, almost always, used negatively to represent evil or sin. Then it has to rep- and so he has just this negative take on this that I think he's missed the point. Why does Jesus use leaven? So if you're taking notes, let's write this down. The reason Jesus uses leaven is because it has certain qualities about it that are like the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is not saying the kingdom of heaven is leaven. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. It has qualities that are like leaven. We could even say it the other way. Leaven has qualities about it that match the kingdom of heaven. Remember how Jesus, before we get to the end of our book this, that we're currently studying, it'll take us a while to get there, but Jesus says that his second coming is like a thief in the night. You remember that? It's like a thief in the night. Is Jesus saying he's a thief? No. He's saying the way a thief comes in the night, that's like how his second coming will be. So something is negative, doesn't, Jesus can pull qualities about it from that. And make application, and that's what he does here. So here's what I want to show you before we start doing our three things. All right? Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like leaven, and it's like a grain of mustard seed. So yesterday I went down to Walmart, and I bought this little pack, $2.98 of mustard seed. Okay? So here's what you can't see from where you're at. There's well over a thousand, I'm sure, well over a thousand mustard seeds in this. So here's what I want to do. I have a little business card and a piece of tape on it, and that has a mustard seed on it. Would you raise your hand if you can see that? Do you see the mustard seed? Seriously, Jonathan? You can see that mustard seed? 
Can anybody else pass the first three rows, see the mustard seed? Because I saw hands go up here, and then I saw one. So really good eyesight. Didn't get that from me. All right. What's the lesson? Kingdom of heaven's like that. Kingdom of heaven is like a piece of leaven that you hide in unleavened dough. If I were to go sit there and you come up here, wait a minute. It's like that. And some of you are like, what is he pointing at? Those of you near the front are going, oh, I see what he's, it's just, it, it's, what's the point? Let's notice three things this morning. And again, these will overlap. Number one, God's kingdom grows from small beginnings. Ladies and gentlemen, would you taste that this morning? Let that go into you. God's wanting us to study these two parables this morning. He wants us to understand something about his kingdom from here until the end of time. God's kingdom grows from small beginnings. In fact, as I looked at this, I believe that, and again, I'm going to take most of my material for the first point from verse 31 and 32 about the mustard seed. Though, listen, I, Lord will, if I remember, I'll come back to verse 33, and it actually says the same thing, but it says it more clearly in verses 31 and 32 from the mustard seed. But here's the lesson. God's kingdom grows. God's kingdom grows from small beginnings. So, it gr so there's two lessons there. Jesus is giving us a dual lesson. I believe there's a secondary lesson and then there is a primary lesson. I want to give them to you in that order. What is Jesus trying to tell his followers, his listeners, whether it be that day or this morning? What's Christ trying to tell us? Write this down. Number one, his kingdom will be greater than expected. Notice this is the secondary lesson. His kingdom, you ought to mark it in your mind. His kingdom, Christ's kingdom, the kingdom of God will be greater than expected Verse 32 says, it's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it is larger. It is larger. Greater than expected, this kingdom will be, said Yoda. <laughs> Greater than expected, this kingdom will be. <laughs> I say the dumbest thing sometimes, I'm sorry. Now, here's the thing. Here's what's unusual. Jeff, I don't know that that's really the point. His hearers, watch, they already anticipated a great kingdom. They did. But I think what he's trying to say is, as great as you think the kingdom will be, it's greater than you think. Why? Because in, in his hearer's mind, the kingdom was going to be made. In their envisioning of it, the kingdom will be filled with Jews. And Jewish proselytes, if Gentiles want in on it, Gentiles will become Jews and they'll be called proselytes. But it'll be them in the kingdom over everyone else and everyone else is down under them as they in essence crush the rest of us. Here's the problem with that. That's an incomplete view of the kingdom. It's not accurate. And I think one of the things Christ is saying is, guys, listen, it's a lot greater than you think. Look at verse 32. I'm only going to make a few comments about these birds. And I'm thankful for, for most of the commentaries that I read because otherwise I really wouldn't have known what this is talking about. Look at it. He says, it's the smallest of all seeds, but when it is grown, it's larger than all the plants in the garden, all the garden plants, and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. This rung true in my heart when I heard it. Apparently, what Christ is pulling from is an Old Testament analogy that is found in both Ezekiel and Daniel. You say, what do those two uh, Old Testament major prophets have in common? 
both of them have a tree analogy and birds that come into the tree. But here's the thing. We know what they represent. The tree in both Ezekiel and in Daniel represents a great kingdom. And these birds that come to this tree or these trees represent the nations that are coming to the great kingdom for provision and for protection. So the tree is this great kingdom and the birds are the nations and the peoples that are coming for provision and protection. Particularly we know that one of those great kingdoms was the Babylonian kingdom. And if you were living in that time and you had any lick of sense, you want to get on Babylon's good side. And so you would come and be like, hey, can we be part of it? Can we get in on this provision and protection? We'll let you conquer us if we can get in on this. We want to be part of your kingdom. And so the nations would come. What is Christ saying? The kingdom is so great it's going to grow beyond the Jews and beyond Jewish proselytes. It is such a great kingdom that the nations of the world will come to it. Would you leave your spot here? Hold it here. Go to Revelation chapter 7. It's been the only other text that we'll look at today. Revelation chapter 7. This was alluded to in our songs just a little bit ago. I forget which one it was. Notice Revelation chapter 7. If you want something to go home and just contemplate, I challenge you to go home and just read these two verses over and over and over. Let them impact you. John the Revelator, 2,000 years ago, 1,900 years ago, was allowed by the Lord and the Holy Spirit to see the future. This is still yet future for us. This is in the tribulation time period. Watch what John the Revelator, he saw this. This actually has already happened in his mind. In the future, the Lord showed in the future. It is so sure to happen, he saw it as happening. Watch verse 9. John says, after this, I looked and behold a great multitude. Let that sink in. A great multitude that no one could number. So if you're thinking about the mall area between the Washington Monument and the Lincoln Memorial, and when that's all filled and they tell us that's 300,000 people or they estimate that at 500,000 people or that's 700,000 people, yeah, you can count those people. This, behold, John says, there was a great multitude that no one could number. Watch this, from every nation. They had a vision of the kingdom, but it wasn't broad enough. It was incomplete. Christ is trying to warn them. I'm telling you, this is far greater than you realize. He says, there was this multitude that no one could number from every nation. I take that literally. From all tribes and peoples and languages. What are they doing? Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. We know that is the Lord Jesus Christ. They're clothed in white robes. Later on it tells us the reason they're in white robes is because their robes, their clothes, their, their, their life has been washed in the blood of Christ. He says from all nations, all tribes, peoples, and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. What are they do? doing? Crying out, the idea is loud, with a loud voice. A loud voice. I would ruin my vocal cords if I even tried as one person with a little bitty amplification system. With a loud voice, an innumerable amount of people are shouting out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God. 
Not salvation belongs to the Jews, God. No, all the nations. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And if you'll read on, which I don't have time to go into, apparently something in their worship and praise sparks the angels. And the angels are like, well, we better get in on this. And they start worshiping and praising fresh and new. What do they start doing? They say, amen, <laughs> amen, what they said. And then they start shouting, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever, amen. And the angel, one of them says, John, do you know who these people are? You know who they are. Why don't you tell me? And he says, these are those who've gone through great tribulation and they were killed for their faith, but they've had their robes washed in the blood of the lamb and now they're here before the Lord Jesus Christ saying, Praising God for salvation belongs to our God. Ladies and gentlemen, just listen. The first message I preached here officially as pastor, not as candidate. April 7th, 2016 was called The Reality of Eternity. I shared my opinion. So I'm going to give you my opinion. This whole kingdom of God thing, it's a lot bigger than we think it is. It is far beyond what we think it is. You say, Jeff, what are you talking about? Yeah, it's going to be a bunch. It'll be billions. <sighs> My opinion, I know this is the first creation. There's not been another creation before. In my heart, nothing in the word of God says this has to be the last creation. Could I just plant a thought in your mind? I believe we're on the ground floor of something far greater than even the book of Revelation leads us to think. Nothing says God can't do it again and again and again and again. And you're, at, you're the first fruits, James 1.17. You and I are the first fruits of this massive thing. Eternity's a long time. This kingdom is far greater than you think. It is large. Right, us Jews. No, 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 you, you'll get it. Right, us human beings. No, the angels are in. Okay, us and the angels. I don't think we get it. I know there's some people, they invest in stocks, and they wish they could go back in time and buy some Microsoft on the ground floor or get them some Amazon or some Walmart or some Apple stock. Listen, if you don't care about your soul going to hell, if that doesn't bother you, then that's fine. But I'll tell you why you ought to become part of the kingdom of God. This thing is going to be so great, you will regret not being part of it. It's greater than you think. And that's the secondary meaning. Go back to Matthew 13. Number two, I think Christ is teaching us here in the first point. This is the primary meaning, meaning Jesus is saying that Christ's kingdom will be disproportionate to its small beginnings. It will be disproportionate to its small beginnings. So I brought with me this morning something some of you will be able to see, right? I often use an acorn in certain settings, funerals. Not every time, but a lot of times I'll use this. Can y'all see that? Raise your hand if you can see that. Right? Most of you. Can any of you in the back? Yeah, I see, you see that. You're like, yeah, I just see two fingers. Or I see your hand. Some of you are like, actually, yeah, okay. The younger people are like, I see something. Okay. That's an acorn. I use that to illustrate the difference between what we can see now, that's what we can see now, and what something can become. Do you guys know the potential in this thing right here? It has the potential to become a what? No. Somebody heard, said it. A forest. 
In that little seed right there, that acorn, there is a potential to become a forest of oak trees. Jesus didn't use an acorn. Jesus used a mustard seed. Why? Can I propose to you the reason he uses a mustard seed and not an acorn is because the gap between the difference of this, what it is there, and what it has potential to become when it is full-blown, full-grown, and just sweeps over and aggressively takes over countryside after countryside, if not kept in check, is far greater. The difference between that and what it can become is even greater than that and what it can become. Because you can see this in the back. You can't, how many of those could fit, more of these could fit into that than the difference between a mustard seed plant at its maturity than an 85-foot oak tree? What is Christ trying to tell us? Carson words it this way. Pay attention. He says, for Christ, it was not essential to stress the greatness of the future kingdom. Few would dispute that. What I just spent all that time saying as a secondary point, Carson is correct by saying that's not the main thing he's after. Again, it was not essential to stress the greatness of the future kingdom. Few people would dispute that. He says it was more important for him to find a metaphor emphasizing the kingdom's tiny beginning. The acorn wouldn't really get the point across. I need the smallest seed you guys would be able to understand. I want to talk to you about a mustard seed because it becomes the largest of cultivated plants. So if you're taking notes, I believe this is the main point. Write this down. Jesus, his main purpose with the mustard seed, he's trying to tell his guys, his, his people who are listening, do not be discouraged by how small his kingdom appears to be at the moment. If you're discouraged by how small it appears at the moment, you're going to really miss a great point. You say, how small was the kingdom? It's him. It's him and them. Hey, guys, come here. I need to show you something. The kingdom's like this. Well, Lord, who's in the kingdom? Right now, it's me and you guys. <laughs> Do y'all understand if I were to take that right there, take it off that tape, and just put it somewhere in the room and said, I'll give you an hour to go find it? You will not find it. It's so insignificant. At that time in the world, there's Jesus and a few of his disciples. One of them's a pretender. And as they go town to town to town in this little bitty country, they seem so insignificant. Other kingdoms are much greater than whatever that thing's starting out as. Other religions are a lot greater than that one. What the Lord's saying is, if you believe that is how it's going to end, then you are being fooled. Grace for you. Don't be discouraged by the apparent smallness of God's work at times. I need to remember that because I'm a pastor. And I would hope that the Lord would help me remember this on some days. Do y'all know there's some pastors in Anderson County they are going to go home this morning? They're going to go home this morning and they're going to feel like quitting. You know why? Because they walked into their auditorium to preach after preparing. And it's really down today. It's Thanksgiving weekend and the crowd was just low. And they're going to get discouraged. Do you know what the Lord's saying? Don't let the apparent smallness of God's work fool you. There's a, everything's on schedule. You being here this morning, everything's on schedule. Verse 33, I said I would touch on it. We've got to get to the others. 
He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures. I said I would not get most of our point here, but it applies here. Watch this. You see that three measures of flour still from this small beginnings? Three measures. You say, Jeff, what does that mean? That's three. No, it's not three lumps. It means about 55 or 60 pounds of flour. This would be something you'd, you'd cook for a large family. 55 to 60 pounds. This is important. Jesus' point is not saying, oh, if you knew the effect that 30 pounds of leavened dough could have on 30 pounds of unleavened dough, that's not the point. His point is, if you knew the effect, a tiny little pea-sized lump of leavened dough can have on eight and a half gallons of unleavened dough. If you knew the effect it could have on that, just Get in there, take that, stuff it in there, close it back up, and you'll see what happens from tiny, small beginnings. Because it will permeate. And it'll take over that in the end. Don't be fooled by the size. Number two. Let's write this down. God's kingdom alters and transforms. God's kingdom alters and transforms. So this is true from the seed, seed of the mustard seed. It's true from that. We could go that direction, but now I want to more easily, let's apply the parable of the leaven here. What's Christ teaching us? What's this leaven? Watch. Please get it. The Lord wants us to know something this morning. His kingdom alters things. His kingdom transforms. Do you know the kingdom from here to here? Is, it's like leaven. What do you mean, Lord? It's like leaven. You ought to go think about it. Go home and think about it. What's his point? It alters and transforms. Barclay, I'm going to quote him, and as was helped by one of our men here, of all the people that I quote, so let me make this clear, I least endure the th endorse the theology of William Barclay. You say, then why would you quote him? Because he's good on word studies and historical backgrounds and things like that. Um, he wrote some things just before he died, two or three years before he died, that are very disturbing and make us question if he was even saved. Um, but Barclay writes the following. Listen to this. He says, leaven changes the character of the whole baking. Can I translate that? I want to come back to his quote. Leaven in the equation changes everything. That's the point of this, this second point. Insert leaven changes everything, back to his quote. He says, leaven changes the character of the whole baking. Unleavened bread, let's separate in our mind, unleavened bread, bread baked without leaven, it says, is like a water biscuit. I don't even know what that means. Just, in my mind, I'm picturing just oh ooey, gooey, unleavened, sticking to your fingers. You put it in the water, it's just like, just a mess. Can I have a, yeah, like, oh, what are we going to do with that? All right, he says, bread baked without leaven is like a water biscuit. You can have unleavened bread. Here's the description that is accurate. He says, hard, dry, unappetizing, and uninteresting. But then he writes, bread baked with leaven is soft and porous and spongy and tasty and good to eat, a.k.a. Texas Roadhouse Rolls. Many places like that. Croissants over at J. Peter. I mean, you, you get the idea. 
soft and porous and spongy and tasty and good to eat. If I could add the words, put leaven in it, let it leaven the whole thing. I, if I could add the words, airy, literally light, like watch, literally it's this, but it swells up. It literally swells up. It's not sticking to your finger. It's like something changed. Here's his point. You want to write this down. He says, the introduction of leaven causes a transformation in the dough. Literally a transformation. It's changed it. In the same way, he says, the coming of the kingdom causes a transformation in life. Insert leaven into the dough, changes the whole dynamic character, the makeup, literally the molecular structure of the dough. It is now changed because leaven has come in. It's made its way through. Put that same idea into the, when the kingdom of heaven comes into a person, it changes the life. Jeff, what do you mean? Watch. The New Testament teaches us that when we're born physically, we're born spiritually dead. But when you get what the Bible calls born again, your spirit is brought to life by Christ. He brings your spirit to life. Now, here's what happens. When you are born again and your spirit is born again, you're still alive physically. God, Christians, listen. God literally gives you a brand new nature. I mean, down at the nature, your nature has now changed. Like, what are you talking about? 2 Corinthians says that we have become a brand new creation, a brand new creature. We are literally not the same. So, Jeff, how would you explain that? What would you say it? I wrote it down this way. And I know you have a note to write, but I want you to listen to this, and we'll let that up there for a moment. I want you to catch this. This is what I'm about to say. When we get saved, we are no longer sinners enslaved by sin who occasionally do good things. That's what we were. Let me say that again. Before salvation, we're sinners enslaved by sin who occasionally do good things. Once you're saved, that does not describe you. So then what describes us? We become a new creation. We become children of God, saints who are not enslaved to sin. We are free from sin's power, but who occasionally do wrong things. So I need to say that again because some of you were writing a note, which is fine. Get what I'm about to say? Before salvation, we are sinners enslaved to sin who occasionally do good things. After salvation, we are children of God and saints who are not enslaved to sin, who have been given freedom from the power of sin, who occasionally do some wrong things. Totally changed. The life has been changed. Can I word it this way? Guys, Christ's primary goal for Christianity on earth was not to create a more moral society. Lord, what's your goal for Christianity? I just, I just want some little less sinning going on. That is not the goal. But inevitably, when Christianity permeates a society, it inevitably changes the culture. It always changes the culture. Not to be offensive to anybody who loves the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament too, but I want to say very clearly, for the last 2,000 years, Christianity has transformed the world. Judaism never did. If you could go back in time 2,100 years ago and go to 100 spots around the world and then come back to today to those same 100 spots, some of those where Christianity has not yet reached, you may find it to be very similar. But those that Christianity has reached and permeated, you would be like, the change Christianity has made is a total transformation. It is like night and day, and that's not even everybody being there saved. 
Christianity has influenced the world. Judaism just didn't. It was all bottled up there in Israel. The Lord's trying to tell us something. His kingdom changes things. His kingdom alters. Now, here's where I'm going to slow down just for a moment. The second point is shorter than the first, but I need to slow just for a moment here because this is where I want the Holy Spirit to use this in your life. That same dynamic of Christianity and society, and because of the transformation in their life, one Christian can have an enormous effect where they're at. One Christian. Let me read this slowly. Ask the Holy Spirit to impress upon you the truth of this. One Christian can make a huge difference in a family. I mean, here's a family of people. Insert one, one of them gets saved. None of them are saved. Now, one of them saved. One Christian can make a huge family difference in a whole family. One Christian make a huge difference in a classroom. Somebody may be here this morning. You say, well, I got seven in my class, or I got 14 in my class, or we got 26 in my class. One, and you may be thinking, I don't know that anybody, anybody in my class is a Christian. One Christian in that class can make a huge difference. One Christian on a team, one Christian in a business, maybe there's like two business partners or three business, if one of them is a Christian, there may be five people leading this, but if one of them is a Christian, it will change the dynamic of the business in time. The office where you work, you say there's like seven of us in our office, one Christian in the office can make a huge difference. You say, well, I don't work in an office, there's like 300 of us down at the plant. One Christian at the plant makes a huge difference. One Christian in the school of 2,000. One Christian in the village of 250. One Christian in the city. One Christian going into a nation. You're like, Jeff, that's ridiculous. There's one Christian. The original grain of mustard seed was in a cradle 2,000 years ago. And look what has happened. Just insert some leaven. One person. On a, on a, on a funny, so, so small scale, it, I probably shouldn't even include it. I used to coach basketball. Over and over, I've seen the difference that putting the right person in. You put the right player in the game at the right time, I've just seen like the whole complexion of the game just change. Guys running up and down the court. Everybody's selfish. There's no energy. There's no communication. Insert the right person. All of a sudden, there's like energy. People start talking. This person's playing to make everybody else better, so they start playing to make everybody else better. All of a sudden, they're a unit on defense. They're a unit on offense. Things start to scoreboard changes. One person makes all the difference. More than that, I want you to feel what I'm about to say. My family's in construction, so this is where I go to. I don't know your world. Some of you are like, I'm in a class. Some of you are like, I, I, I work at a plant. Or some of you are like, I do this or that. And I have a small group of people I'm around. Some of you are like, I have a large group. I have seen, I've seen it, I've heard it. I felt the difference, the amazing difference. One Christian walking in the power of the Holy Spirit can make on a crowded construction site. I've been there. I'm telling you, I've been there. 15, 20 guys, and there's a whole atmosphere, just the way the buzz and the talk's going on around the house, out in the yard, out in the ditches. These people laying pipe, those people laying lines, these people doing something over there, those up in the attic, and just the whole buzz, and I've been there. Insert Christian walking in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you can just tell within moments. Like, it sounds different. It looks different. It feels different. Years ago, I think I was probably 20 years ago, I had just preached at my home church. My uncle was the pastor there. He had me preach on Sunday, and so 
our family, we just stuck around and, you know, you don't make a lot of money when you're a school teacher. And so to make a little extra money, I worked for my brother on Monday. And we needed to go by a place called Ferguson to get some plumbing supplies. We walked in there on Monday morning. The place was packed. There was probably 12, 15 plumbers, contractors in there. I know they had all these aisles of tools and solder and, and, and pipe wrenches and whatever you may need, shovels, different things. Mainly there was these shiny padded, padded swivel seats up there, and there was like six computers and like six guys standing behind the counter, and everybody's pounding away. Morning, man, everybody knows everybody. They're Monday morning, they're used to it. Man, what can I get for you today? Who's next? All right, yeah, what can I get for you? Well, I need 300 feet of this, and I need 200 of these, and I need 150 of these, and then they're punching up. I need anything. There's just a, a chatter going on. Well, me and my brother, we're over here at the end. My brother's ordering some stuff, and I'm along for the ride. I'm, like, hoping I'm getting paid to be here. But anyway, um, I'm with him. In walks my cousin Randy, other side of the store. And you just have to know Randy. He's got a loud voice. But he, he, he must have been walking in the spirit that day because I'm over there with Russell on the other end. In, in walks Randy, 12, 15 guys in the room. And Randy says, Jeff, man, I enjoyed that sermon yesterday. Just like that. Anyway, if I could have, uh, if I could get about 300 feet of the, uh, yeah. And Randy from over here just keeps on. Man, I love I the one part especially about that. And I'm honestly, I'm sitting there because I'm an introvert. I'm thinking, Guys, just carry on. Never mind us. Don't this is embarrassing. What in the world are you talking about? Man, I love that one part and that one pass. That's one of my favorite. And I'm like, he took over the whole place. One guy. Does that describe your influence where God has planted you? Is that your life? You say, Jeff, where am I? Does that describe? You say, well, I'm just one person. I can't really. I think sometimes because most of us are not the first or the only Christian in a particular setting, we take for granted there's other Christians. Well, we're not the first one. Somebody else was the first. Others will do it. They'll set the tone. They'll set the atmosphere. What if we all, young people in classes, those of you who are retired but you run in certain circles, those of you who are going to go to work tomorrow, those of you who are the boss, those of you who work under the boss, those of you who are in the middle, wherever that may be, those of you on a team, what if you literally went in with this attitude? Lord, I'm asking you for boldness. Make me that person that sets the tone and the atmosphere in the whole place. Just let me permeate and change and alter and transform. Use me to do that. In my mind, all week, I kept seeing a movie. And I can't, I don't know if this is the last scene of the movie or is this the first scene of the movie. But there's a village I want you to picture the village. It's about 250 people. Your village may have a thatched roof hut all through it, or your village may be cold concrete walls and cinder blocks. But there's an old trailways bus, and it may be a dusty road, or it may be a dirty concrete road that has dried mud on it, but it just pulls up to the edge of town, and it opens the door. Thank you. And off steps a man or a woman with, a, with a, a piece of luggage. And they're the first Christian who's ever gone to that village. I don't know if that's the last and just to be continued. Or is that the first scene of the movie? They're the first one. That sounds exciting to me. You say, Jeff, really? There's something in me that like, really? 250 of them? 300? They've never, they have no clue. This sounds like fun. Let's go do this. He said, would you just go in and set up shop and start? Don't know. 
And that takes us to the third point. We've got to get here. God's kingdom often progresses quietly. God's kingdom often progresses quietly. Man, I've got to hurry here, but I want to get this point across. This is important. We could teach this from the mustard seed because it's just a seed and it dies. Remember the original seed, dies? <laughs> Who's that? Oh, that's Christ. It dies and then it has this little shoot. And, but boy, it grows and it grows and it grows and the birds of the air come. So this is in that, but more than that, maybe more easily saying, stick with the leaven thought. Lord, what's your kingdom like? I think the Lord would be like, Jeff, why don't you go tell those people that my kingdom, the reason it ends up so great is because it's progressing quietly. If you're taking notes, write this down. The transforming work of God's kingdom, which we just talked about, it alters and transforms. The transforming work of God's kingdom and those who are in the kingdom will become visible. I want to make that clear. They will become visible, but it may seem hidden for a time. Oh, it'll become visible. They'll become visible. The transforming power. It'll become visible. The people who are true Christians, they will become visible. But it may seem hidden for a little while. I didn't find the picture, didn't think to do it until it was too late. But boy, there, there's this one. I think it's a river in France. I wish I had it on the screen because it's like this large rock edifice, almost makes like an amphitheater. And just out of the bottom of this rock, this water comes shooting out. It's the head of the river. It's the source. But it's not really the source. Listen, God's kingdom is kind of like leaven. It's working. It's hidden. Something's going on beneath the soil with the seed. You don't always see it. Do you understand that rivers, have you ever thought, now where do these things come from? you got to go back into the mountain, and then we see where it starts coming out. Or maybe it's leaking out in all these, and they come down into a creek, and all the creeks come together into this little thing and that little thing, and they join together, and they make a river, and eventually it flows to the sea. But it starts out of these mountains, and it's not like we can go back in there and find out how far. There has been a river hidden, unseen to our eyes that's been going through this mountain, and it's not until it comes out and surfaces that we even know it was there. Oh, but it was there. Jeff, what's your point? I want to promise you something. This week, tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of people will become brand new Christians all around the world, all around this country, right where they sit. Right where they sit. You say, what do you mean? Tens of thousands of people. Here's how it'll happen with some. They'll be sitting in church and they'll never move a muscle and they'll become a brand new Christian. You say, oh, so going to church makes you, no, 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 not, not go, going to church did not make them a brand new Christian. I'll tell you what happened. Others, they're literally going to be sitting somewhere watching a TV show, and what they hear will impact them. Others, riding down the road, listen to the radio, and they'll become a Christian. Others will be listening to a podcast some will be watching a live stream like this one, though this week is not an evangelistic message. This is a message to the church. But some, they'll be listening, watching a live stream. You say, Jeff, what do you mean? It'll be hidden. This is the key. Right where they sit in church or watching whatever it is or listening to whatever it is, they're going to hear the gospel, and these people, they'll understand. Okay. 
I understand what that means. They'll hear the pure gospel. It'll make sense to them. It'll wow them, but I understand. And then they will agree with it. And because they agree with it, they will confess. Like literally, right where they're sitting. They'll confess their sins to God. Like maybe even in a living room and the rest of the family doesn't even know. They're confessing their sins to God. Watch. And they will take their trust for eternal life and they'll take it off of themselves and they'll put their trust on the Lord Jesus Christ. And then they will receive the forgiveness of God. And the key, nobody will know that it happened for days, maybe weeks. Nobody will know. But it is real. It can never be undone. And it will transform their life. It's going to transform their life. But you don't know it for days. I'm so glad no one has rebuked me in the four years and three months I've been here because I get it. The way I do evangelistic invitations is very different than a lot of us are used to. And I'm sure I've made some folks here question, and I maybe even I've made some folks mad. And I'm sure there's, I guarantee you, nobody's told me this, I'll guarantee you there's been discussions in the past. Why does he do that? Why don't he do that? This is not to say the way I do evangelistic invitations is the right way and that the way other people do evangelistic invitations is the wrong way. I'll just tell you right up. I have done traditional evangelistic invitations, and I reserve the right to do them again in the future. I'm not against them. There is not one way. You say, what do you mean? You know what I mean. Heads bowed, eyes closed. Raise your hand if you know that you for sure, 100%, you're a Christian. Don't raise your hand if you don't know that you're a Christian, 100%. Raise your hand. If you couldn't raise your hand because you're 99% sure or less than that, or you just know you're not, would you raise your hand? All right. Those of you who raised your hand, why don't you look up at me this time? Raise your, here's one. Raise your hand if you want me to pray for you that the Lord would speak to you and give you strength to get saved when hands go up. All right. Those of you who raised your hand, why don't you look up at Do you care enough about your soul to come down front and somebody will meet you down here and we'll have them pray with you on the altar and you'll get saved down here? Jeff, why don't you do that? Man, you could really put the pressure on them. We reserve the right as the Lord leaves to invite as the Lord leads. But in my heart, I want reality. Because I believe reality will come out. And sometimes, most of the time, I feel like the best one to lead that person to Christ is the one they've already been listening to and the Lord's just speaking to them. And so often I'll say, right where you're sitting, right now, what you've heard, would you receive it? I said, Jeff, sometimes we may never know. Hey, here's my point. It's hidden. But it's happening. I have a sneaking suspicion that when we get to eternity, some of the fruitless invitations to put faith and trust in Christ right where people are sitting may not have been so fruitless. I think when we get there, we may find out somebody online, somebody who was listening later, or somebody who was sitting in the church service said, Jeff, I don't really know, man. I think you really got to get them up front, get them sign a card, get them shake your hand, all in favor. <laughs> Do you realize back in February we had four people get saved as a result of one service? And only one of them came up to me after the service and said, hey, just want you to know I got saved this morning. Another one settled that at home. Just a couple hours later. Do you know that it was weeks later that a young lady came up and said, hey, by the way, a few weeks ago, I put my faith in trust. Are you kidding? That was the same. And then weeks after that, an older lady came up and said, I just want you to know that 
I did this. And in fact, it was when you were preaching on the. I'm like, are you kidding? The, you're the fourth one. Hidden. Write this down, though. This is important. Boy, I haven't even flipped the page. I'm just going from memory here. All right. This is important. I want to be clear to all who have believed Christ calls you to go public. If you really did get saved, if you really put your faith and trust in Christ, have you gone public? The Lord doesn't want you to go through life as a secret Christian. You say, how would we go public? The main way is through baptism. So I would ask you, if you're sitting at home, Jeff, you just described me just a few weeks ago. Literally, at the end of the service, you gave an invitation right here where I am. I put my faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. You will come out public, friend, if you really did it. Is it time? You may not be a member of our church. You don't have to be. You may need to say, Jeff, I live about 50 miles away. Can I come down there one Sunday and get baptized because I put my faith? Come on down. You don't become a member automatically of our church just by getting baptized. You need to come public. Somebody sitting here this morning say, man, I need to do that. It's time. So as we come down the home stretch, what does this mean for us? Gracefully, what does this mean for us? MacArthur writes the following. I hope you'll get it. He says, when a Jewish girl was married... A Jewish girl was married. Her mother would give her a small piece of leavened dough from a batch baked just before the wedding. Get ready to bake this. Bakes that. We're going to eat that at the wedding. But then gives the daughter this little piece of leavened dough. Why? From that gift of leaven, the bride would bake bread for her own household throughout her married life. Well, if you think about that. So wait a minute. Here's this girl getting a piece of leavened dough from her mom, who, if this is true, got it from her mom, who, if this is true, got it from her. This is like generational. That's how the kingdom is. The point is, this new bride has everything she needs to bake leavened bread for the rest of her life. Mama doesn't give her a big container. All right, now, honey, just get you a scoop of this, put it in there, whirl it around. No, 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 this is all you need. But mom, what about, this is all you need. Always take a new piece out. Yes, ma'am. You'll have everything you need. If you're taking notes, write this down because it's true. True children of God have all we need to reproduce ourselves spiritually. Every person in here, if you're a true Christian, you have everything you need. Man, I was reminded of this as I read 2 Peter chapter 1 this week. True children of God have all that we need to reproduce ourselves spiritually by leading other people to faith in Christ. You say, right, I, I probably need to. We can get better at it, but you already have all that you need. What the Lord is teaching, again, I'm going to come back to this. A single Christian can, the idea, leaven a whole lump. A single Christian can be used to convert a whole group of people who will then go out and convert a whole group of people who, who will go out and convert groups and groups of people. You say, literally, yes, it starts with just one, just insert that and it'll just take over the whole place. That's the point. I think what Christ is trying to say Listen, please listen carefully. This is why that bus and getting off in the village or the city, whatever it may be, sounds so exciting to me. I think what the Lord is saying is that if he can just get one of his people to an area, he fully expects they will convert others who will convert others who will convert others. Why? Write this down. This is so true. 
Every follower of Christ always takes certain things with them wherever they go. Wherever you go, you say, I'm a Christian. Wherever you go, you always take certain things with you. I'm going to give you three. I'm just going to say them. And I left off a fourth because we didn't have time. And honestly, by the time I wrote these notes, typed them out, it dawned on me what the fourth one was. And it's the most important. You say, what, what does every Christian have? You say, no matter where we go, I don't care where you go. You may be headed somewhere and there's 10,000 people and none of them are saved. You're the only one. You take these three things, write them down. You take your faith. They may not have it. You have faith. It'll always be with you. Number two, you have a relationship with God. You say, what if none of them have it? You have a relationship with God. It always goes with you. You say, well, what if my relationship with God's not really good right now? You have a relationship with God. You have faith. You say, what else do we have? This is key. You, if you're a true Christian, everywhere you go, you have a knowledge of the gospel. You know the gospel. You say, I don't think I'm really good. I don't think I can lead anybody to faith in Christ. I don't really know the gospel. No, listen, be careful. You may, what you may mean in your heart is, I don't know all the verses to back it up, but I promise you, if you're a true Christian, you know the gospel. You know what you did to get saved. You better know what you did. If you're sitting here saying, I don't really know what I did to get saved, then you're not a Christian. Every Christian has a knowledge of the gospel. What the Lord is saying, if I just get my people with their faith, their relationship with me, their knowledge of the gospel, how long can they keep that really hidden? How long can they hide that from the rest of the team, from the rest of the class, from the rest of the school, from the other people in the office, in the plant? How long can they just hide that in the village? It's going to come out. And once it does, it's on now. See, today we were supposed to have, you don't know this, we were supposed to have Moses Kaziba with us. But the Lord just didn't allow that to happen. I, I, we didn't announce it on purpose because we weren't sure. And sure enough, all the COVID restrictions and quarantining, uh, Brother Moses was supposed to be with us. And I was disappointed. But the Lord knows. He has a will. So why are you bringing up Moses? I've never met him. But it's my understanding that Moses Kaziba illustrates today's message. He's one man. Let this sink in. One man being used by God to influence thousands of people for Christ in Uganda. He does a lot of different things. Just one of the things he does is he trains pastors, young pastors, to go into villages and towns. And they go evangelize other people. And then they train the people they evangelize to go into other relationships and other towns and villages to evangelize. This guy is affecting thousands of Ugandans. Because his ministry is like leaven. His ministry is proof that the little seed of Christ and his followers is still growing into this great tree. It's reached Uganda 2,000 years later because it's still going in the life and the ministry of Moses Kaziba. He's leavening Uganda. Not by himself, but because of the work in his ministry, we as elders in just a few weeks are going to propose to Graceview that we support his work in our 2021 budget. But he's just one. He's just one. He's not the only one. And here's my closing thought. In 2020, we've put several, please don't tune me out. In 2020, we've put several giving opportunities before you. And I'm talking about things that are over and above our Normal tithes and offerings. I mean, extra giving. You remember back in March, April? There was the Annie Armstrong for North American missions. It is a great need. It wasn't that much later, just a few months later, 
We put three things. Moses' ministry in Uganda to give poor people food. The virus had hit there and people were literally starving. We need to send them help for food. There was a tornado hit Oconee. And so we took up a collection for tornado relief for people in Oconee, very close by. And the Haven's thrift stores, Haven of Rest thrift stores, were not able to open and, and be a source of income. So we ask you, would you give toward that? Literally just this past week, two more canned goods and foods for Kentucky and then of course the Samaritan's Purse shoe boxes and you guys just blew it out of the water and praise the Lord as the Lord used you to do that can I give you my opinion that I feel pretty strongly about of all the things of all the things that we give toward in the course of a year the last one we do Lottie Moon you saw a video you have an insert the Lottie Moon International Mission Board takes a a collection for international missionaries to me This one is the most crucial one of them all. This year, they're actually doing something they've not done in the previous five years that I've been here. So what are they doing? We're getting an email, and they're asking for 10% more. Are you guys nuts? This is a pandemic. What are you talking about? You want me to go out there and ask our folks to give 10% more? Don't you know that we we did so great with Samaritans, and we did so great with this? Is that God's will for us? That's all I'm going to ask you. I don't, I'm not saying it is. They want 10% more because apparently they know that there's more who are wanting to go. Well, wait, if there's more who's wanting to go, don't we want in on that? I mean, if we believe this, and it's great, and it grows from small to enormous, and it transforms and alters, and it works quietly, and it's not always big bang, you don't see everything... Just let it keep working. If we really believe that, is it God's will that we get in on that? So here's where you say, Jeff, okay, yes, I think it is. What do I need to do? Would you, would you just do this? Would you just do this? Would you join me? Two things. This is, this is contingent that you know what God sounds like. Would you just pray? Lord, let Graceview do its part in your global work. And here's the two things. God, I'm asking, I'm going to do this, literally. What do you want me to give toward the Lottie Moon Christmas offering for international missionaries? And what he impresses upon you, obey it. Everybody. Ask him, and then obey it. Your last note is this. Why? Because as Christians, the reason we pray, the reason we send, why are we sending them? The reason we give, hey, don't you know it's Christmas, man? We've had a lot going on. It's time to splurge. The reason we pray and send and give, Jeff, don't you know, times are tight. The reason we go is because we truly believe God's kingdom permeates and transforms and quietly grows. And I believe in my heart, if we really do believe that, it'll show in our actions. Do I really believe God's kingdom is growing quietly? Do I really believe his kingdom changes and transforms lives? Do I really believe his kingdom? If we can get Christians there, God in his time will use them and it will permeate that area. When you finish writing that, would you bow your heads just for a moment? This is not an evangelistic invitation, though I will begin before I pray. And I'm going to ask just a few questions. But I've got to ask, just before I pray... If there's anyone who's listening to this and says, Jeff, 
you know what stood out to me? I'm not a Christian, but man, I was extremely piqued by this idea that all of the kingdom of God and God's plan for the future may be a lot bigger. I want in on that. I, I want to be part of that, and I'm not part of that right now. It's going to be greater than you think. It's going to be a lot greater than we can imagine. All I can tell you now is that you must stop trusting yourself for salvation. If you trust your goodness, you will die and go to hell. But the Bible says if you will put your faith and trust in God's Son and His death on the cross, that Jesus' blood will wash away all your sins, even the ones you've not yet committed. And that's not permission to go commit sin after salvation. It's just a realistic view. We still do commit acts of sin, but He'll change your life. You come to Him with full faith in Christ alone. You ask God. You confess your sins. You admit, Lord, I'm a sinner. But you got to block me out. You've got to get along with God and say, God, I... I believe that Jesus' death was for me and it was sufficient to pay for all my sins. And I receive him as my Lord and my Savior. Right at that moment, you right then, you receive it. And you even tell God, God, I'm receiving your forgiveness. It's a lot bigger than you think. You want in on this. If we can help you, won't you contact us or go back and watch last week's message. That would help you. Christians, I close with these thoughts for us. Number one, Christians, listen, tune in. Hey, don't be discouraged about the size of God's work. Don't be discouraged about that. Christians, listen to me. Don't be afraid to begin a small work. Don't be afraid to begin a small work. God uses small works. Christians, Let's ask God to help us reproduce ourselves spiritually by permeating people around us. If you're really a Christian, I want to promise you something. You already have what it takes, and I mean you. Yes, you. You have what it takes to permeate the people around you. Ask God. Ask God, like, Lord, give me courage and boldness Ask the Lord to let you be filled. Like you say, Jeff, that, that getting off the bus and going in the village, man, God kind of like, I saw that. What if you took that to the team tomorrow, to the classroom, to the locker room? What if you took that to the office? What if you took that to the board meeting? I'm not meaning being obnoxious. I mean just, Lord, just use me, however you want to use me, to set the temperature of where you have me. Help me to set the spirit. Help me not to rely on somebody else. Lord, use me, overcome my personality, and then bless it. And then the last two thoughts this morning is for Christians. Will you support God's work around the world? Do you know there are some who are saying already, I'll go to those unreached villages and cities. I'll go. That's exciting to me. I'm ready to go. Would you support them ask God Lord what would you have me to give don't be shocked by what he says and then obey 
is anyone, is anyone here who would say not to me, but to the Lord, 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 are you calling me to go? Do you want me to go? Is that what you're doing in my life? Father, Lord, I admit I didn't see a lot in this text Monday morning. Lord, I'm sorry for the way I am trying to preach it. No doubt I've hindered your work. But you're gracious and you're merciful and you work in hidden ways that don't depend upon us. We just get to be part of your process. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, what a challenge. Thank you for the grain of the Lord Jesus. We're excited about what your kingdom is becoming. Let us be found faithful. Let us have courage. Let us be reproducing ourselves in the power of your Holy Spirit. Lord, thank you that we have our faith in a relationship with you and a knowledge of the gospel. May we not keep it hidden. Use us to permeate those around us. Lord, let us obey what you would have us to give. And Lord, wherever you may send us, may we go. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. Have a great week.